The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit with a mission to connect people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River Basin through Indigenous voices. Find out more at confluenceproject.org. We claim and think about land not as a place for which we claim rights, but as a place for which we have responsibility, moral responsibility. Land is the place we enact responsibility for life because land is sacred. Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. What does land mean to you? It could be a plot of earth to call your own, or a patch of ground to build a house on and raise a family. To others, land is money, something to sell, or a place to grow crops or extract minerals. For the indigenous peoples of North America, land is part of their cultural heritage, woven into the very fiber of their existence. This is a concept that Robin Wall Kimmerer explores in her best-selling book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Today on the Story Gathering Podcast, we'll hear Robin share some of her observations about the way indigenous views of the land can help us develop a more sustainable vision for the future. Robin was the guest speaker for a Confluence Conversation Lecture in November 2020. When I went away to college and studied uh, conservation and natural resource management, what I learned was that land is natural resources. They're almost synonymous with one another in that Western knowledge framework. Land is also understood as capital, right? Because we often have Western science coupled to our economic, the dominant economic system. Land is understood as property, isn't it? That is almost one of the first meanings of land as a place for which people claim rights, the property rights. And sometimes we think about land as a source of ecosystem services, those things which allow life to flourish on, on the planet, things like water purification, soil building, and little things like oxygen generation. Through the Western lens and through the lens of much of Western science education, this is what land means. But what if we use that other lens? What if we used the lens of indigenous ways of knowing? What if we planted corn at the center of our knowledge garden? What might we think and learn about what land means? Could we unlearn some of this settler view of what land is? And remember that land in the indigenous worldview is a source of identity. People's beings are inseparable. Indigenous people's beings are, are inseparable from their lands. Certainly land as our sustainer, the ones who take care of us. Land as home, not only for people, but for our more than human relatives as, as well. All of the bugs and birds and fish and, and trees and mosses and flowers, it's their home too. Land understood as a connection over time to our ancestors and to our descendants. Their presence is living in the land and it is out of the land that our descendants look to us 
for their lives. Land as our library, land quite literally as the teacher, the source of our knowledge. Land as our healer, it's the pharmacy, both biophysical and spiritual. Because the land is inspirited, because the land is our home, because we claim and think about land not as a place for which we claim rights, but as a place for which we have responsibility, moral responsibility. Land is the place we enact responsibility for life because land is sacred. This is decolonizing ecology education, decolonizing environmental education, to think about land in this multifaceted way of mind, body, emotion, and spirit. Language matters, words matter. When we teach our students and, and ourselves, you know, learning and unlearning, are these natural resources or are they gifts? If you worked in the department of earthly gifts, as opposed to the department of natural resources, wouldn't your job be different? Wouldn't you feel differently about it? Wouldn't you behave differently? Words matter. These two lenses of looking at lands really pose this question for us of, is land merely a source of belongings or can it be our most profound source of belonging and indeed the common ground that we long for? I want to invoke on an evening devoted to education, learning and unlearning, the words of, of faith keeper Oren Lyons of Onondaga Nation, who has been a wonderful mentor and, and teacher to me and, and to so many others all over the globe. When he was asked after a lifetime of doing work in environmental education, environmental philosophy, when he was asked, what is it that we need to do to turn away from the destructive path that we are on? He said it really boils down to four words. Values change for survival. It isn't that we need more data. We don't need more policy. We don't need more technology. All of those things are valuable and will contribute to a revolution towards sustainability, real sustainability. But what he said we need is values change. And Western science alone explicitly excludes values. So it can't be the only tool that we use in thinking about sustainability. Values change for survival. Oftentimes in our educational systems, the values that we impart in science education are critical ones. Are we educating for the Anthropocene or the Symbiocene? That term, the Anthropocene, to acknowledge that we are living in a world dominated by humans. I prefer the language of the Symbiocene, that we are living, entering into a time when symbiosis among all beings and indeed among all knowledges is what will create a green pathway for us. Are we going to persist 
in the learning that we as humans are basically consumers. We're so often referred to as consumers rather than citizens. Is that all we are? Are we educating our young people to be members of an extractive economy or a regenerative economy? That's part of decolonizing education too. Another element of decolonizing education is who do we consider to be the teacher? That authority standing up in front of the room, who is a human, who is an individual in only one species? Are we in STEM learning about the land and missing the opportunity to learn from the land, to consider the land as teacher? And learning from the land requires that you be on the land, that you be in the presence of, of, of the teacher. It requires forming relationships with other beings born of attention, respect, reciprocity. Learning from the land requires cultivating certain qualities of, of perception, learning how to be still, learning how to look, learning how to listen with more than your ears. It requires humility, the humility to know that we can learn from intelligences other than our own. This is a hallmark of that other lens on education, that there are other beings out there who are our teachers, other beings who can help us solve problems and guide us to the future. And in our, in Potawatomi ways of knowing, we call the plants our teachers. Not only are they beings, but they are in persons, but they are our oldest teachers. And when you think about it, they unite earth and sky, light and dark. Who else has the capacity to turn light and air and water into food and give it away, to turn it into medicine and give it away? They are our teachers of generosity. They're teachers of, of sharing the gift. We could do worse than listening to plants as our teachers. And if plants are our teachers, the question then becomes, how can we be better students? We know that as a society, we have actually been diagnosed with what conservation biologists and others call plant blindness. Um, that not only do we um, uh, disregard plants and think of them as at the bottom of, of a hierarchy rather than our, our esteemed teachers, but our conservation dollars, our science dollars, our research and teaching um, efforts are for the most part um, directed toward animals um, and not and not to plants and this too is part of our work in shifting the lens toward those other beings who sustain us if plants are our teachers how do we be better students certainly by paying attention by paying attention in the familiar ways and in the unfamiliar ways, by, by cultivating these qualities of perception, of, of humility and, and deep learning and deep listening to the beings um, who are around us. Paying attention, we not only have to pay attention to the beauty of a camas meadow, but we have to pay attention to the wounds of the world as well, to the clear cut as well. We will pay attention to 
the, the beautiful peaks, but we also have to pay attention to the, to the open pit mind because attention focuses us in a way that creates intention and intention is what leads to action. Paying attention is a sacred act. Attention also often means that we pay attention and learn names. And it's not just because I'm a botanist that I think we all ought to learn names. I don't care what names you learn, but that you recognize our neighbors, um, our companions on this planet, indeed our, our relatives and, and our teachers. Why is knowing names important? Not only because it brings you into relationship with the living world, but the truth of the matter is, is that the world seems less like a shopping bag full of, of, of commodities or a warehouse full of stuff, that exploitative worldview again. It feels more like a community, more like a family when we've taken the time to learn their names. Educational psychologists have told us this, this now well-known fact that the average American school child recognizes 100 corporate logos and only 10 plants. Our attention has been hijacked and it's time we reclaim it toward those beings who really sustain us. If we are to change this trajectory of sustainability that we began with at the, at the top of this hour, I think the education shift that we need, additional shift among the many I've, I've mentioned already, is this notion that in science education, in environmental education, can we be educating for the qualities of empathy and agency? Can we create systems that generate ecological compassion for the living world and generate in our students and in ourselves a sense of agency that we have the ability to answer that question of what does the earth ask of us, that we can be givers to the earth, not just passive takers. What is it? What are some of the tools that we have to educate for empathy and for agency? What does the earth ask of us? One of the important answers there is gratitude. And again, let me say, as I did at the outset, that in my culture, which is a culture of gratitude, we say this is our first responsibility to give gratitude to those beings who whose lives support our own. This is a teaching of, of value and reciprocity as we also learn our ecological environmental sciences. We learn what does it mean to be grateful for them because when I'm eating that apple, um, the offspring of that apple tree is now in my mouth. Um, the, the gratitude that we feel to each of their, these beings because they have given us our, their, their gifts. It creates a culture of interdependence. We also know that cultures of gratitude, by and large, 
the practice of, of radical gratitude is transformative because cultures of gratitude create an ethic of sufficiency, of enoughness. Practice of gratitude and recognition of the beings who, who support your life reminds you that you have everything that you need. And it puts the brakes on this, this endless consumption that our economy calls us toward. And um, so practice of gratitude and contentment can be a radical act when economies are constantly telling us we don't have enough and that we should consume more. Gratitude is also powerful in creating both empathy and agency because gratitude opens the door to reciprocity. We know this as human people, right? When somebody gives us a gift, we know what we want to do. We want to give a great gift back in addition to saying thank you. Gratitude compels reciprocity. And how do we reciprocate the gifts of the earth? How can we as human people give back rather than accepting this this colonial notion that humans and nature are a bad mix and ought to be kept apart. The earth calls us to reciprocity and it brings us back to that question of what does it mean to be an educated person? An educated person who knows their gift and how to give it in the world is someone capable of reciprocity and the joy and the justice that follows from that. How do we do this? The list is long. Let me just touch on a couple more um, before we close this evening. One of the most powerful forms of agency and empathy that we can educate ourselves for is restoration, is healing. Um, shovels and seeds and plants in the ground. I think about ecosystem restoration as doing dishes in Mother Earth's kitchen. We have had this feast. We have had this feast of all of the gifts of the earth and we've made a mess. And now it's time to clean it up. It's our responsibility as well as our gift to do that. And I've worked in ecosystem restoration for some time now and now in reciprocal restoration. And in this work, I've come to understand that it's not just the land that's broken. It's our relationship to land that's broken. Onondaga Lake, a sacred lake filled with mercury, that's broken. But it is evidence of a broken relationship with land. So our work as educators, as learners, is not only to heal the land, but to heal our relationship with land as well. And restoration of relationship is not what Western science is good at. Explicitly not, because it sets aside values very explicitly. So in order to restore both land and relationship to land, we need a symbiosis between ways of knowing. And traditional ecological knowledge is rich in prescriptions of how we care for the land, of how human people can be givers to the land, so much so that, that we think that human people can be medicine for the land. 
as opposed to the Western notion of being a plague on the land. What does the earth ask of us? Respect, one of those five R's. There's a lot of ways to think about that. But one of the important elements as we think about, um, again, learning and unlearning and decolonizing science education in particular, is that in Western ways of knowing, we value in the scientific community, knowledge for knowledge's sake. We call it pure research, right? And it is held up as, as, as a, a great good. And indeed, many times it is. But it is unencumbered by responsibility. In Western science, we separate the observer and the observed. We set aside values for knowledge. In indigenous ways of knowing and in indigenous ways of teaching and learning, that's not possible. Knowledge and responsibility are inextricably linked. In fact, many indigenous teachers will not impart or share knowledge until they have taught responsibility. When I teach my classes and the students all want to know, oh, can we pick that? Can we eat that? Let's go harvest it. We don't begin there. We begin with responsibility and later with the knowledge of the gifts of, of those plants. The Honorable Harvest is a, now, I know many of you are part of the groups that have been reading Braiding Sweetgrass, so you're familiar with these ideas that when we take from the land this coupling of knowledge and responsibility, we have a responsibility to harvest honorably from the land of using self-restraint, never take the first one, ask permission to take those things, listen for the answer. Can, can do these plants and animals have enough to share? Take only what you need, use everything that you take, minimize harm in the way that one takes, offer gratitude, share everything that you've taken reciprocate the gift and take only that which has been given to us. The Honorable Harvest is a set of indigenous protocols for how we take from the world. It doesn't say that we don't take, we have to. We're animals, we can't photosynthesize. But the way that we take with respect is to engage the rest of the living world as our family, as persons, as teachers, not as things, not as a warehouse full of commodities, but our family and treat them thusly. Robin Wall Kimmerer is the author of Braiding Sweetgrass. She's an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation and lives in Syracuse, New York, where she's the founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. To find out more about Confluence, our education programs, and the five completed sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. And remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence, and that's you. Join us today at confluenceproject.org. Thanks for listening to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast. For more episodes, visit our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.